Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Back in my commodities days, once in a while we'd look at the equity market, and we were always amazed that the market just seemingly went up every day. And (laughs) we had this running joke. It got to the point where I'd ask the question, why is the market up today? And somebody would say, because it's open. And that became this gag. And you know, it's not that far from the truth, because here we are on the On The Tape podcast. By the way, Guy Adami, Dan Nathan, and Danny Moses sitting here on a Thursday where the Dow Jones is up a cool 500 points. The S&P is up a cool... 75 handles. NASDAQ, obviously a commensurate move there. Some individual stocks just off to the races. Doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense to me, but you know what? We're going to have a conversation with David Rosenberg in a little while. Maybe it makes sense to him. Rosie of Rosenberg Research. You know what? Listen, it's funny. He said, you guys keep asking me back and, and sooner or later I'll be right. And he was joking around here. And we made the point, some of the best strategists, some of the best economists, you're not actually trading to their targets. You're not trading to some of their estimates. You're actually trying to get a nuanced sense for the stuff that's moving markets. And to your point, Guy, about sitting on a commodities desk all those years and looking at what's going on in the equities, it must have looked like it was just some kind of goofiness. I'm assuming this was like in the late 90s. The the moves were not of this magnitude, but it was seemingly every day the thing just built on itself. And then every once in a while, you'd have an event where the market went down. It came to the point where if the market was open, the market was going higher. And we're starting to see that around the edges over the last five or six trading days. The market was clearly breaking down a week and a half or so ago. Maybe it got down, maybe it got over its skis a little bit in terms of market sentiment. Clearly, that happened in the bond market. I didn't think yields would move from 5% in the 10-year down below 4.7%. Yet here we are. Everybody now seemingly knows what's going on with Treasury. But as much as there is to like about the market being higher, I understand people along stocks, there's just as much to be concerned about. People were waiting for a signal from the bond market. We talked about this for basically a reason to go back into equities. So yields coming off, obviously it's been feeding on itself these last few days, but ask yourself why yields are coming off. It started because I believe the ISM number was horrendous. That's the leading indicator for economic activity. Combine that with the Fed yesterday, which didn't tell us anything that we didn't expect. They weren't going to raise, not raising in December, really higher for longer, still in there. And then you think about, now everyone's an expert, you joke on Investopedia about 
treasury auctions and all of a sudden everyone's watching and it was $2 billion less next week that's going to be sold out of $114 billion. It's absurd. And the tenor, more importantly, of, I think, of the auction was towards the shorter end of the curve. So that's why you've seen the sharp rally in the seven year, the 20 year, the 30 year and so forth in between 25 and 30 basis points. You have to figure that Treasury, the Yellen is aware of how careful people are watching that all of a sudden. Right. But we know we have issues. We're still going to have a 816 billion next quarter that's going to be issued. We have 776 billion in debt that's going to be issued this quarter. And she actually made a point to talk about the months of November to January where things will accelerate. So anyway, I think all those things combined gave people an excuse in an oversold market. We've rallied almost, I think, five and a half percent off the lows in the S&P. But to me, nothing's changed. And so throw in BOJ with that, throw in the BOE with that in terms of two other central banks which have been active. And we'll talk about Bank of Japan later, I'm sure. But here's what I'm looking at. I'm looking at names. God forbid you miss in this environment, right? In earnings, even today, or even when the market was rallying yesterday. And the flip side of that is that this is the kind of market where you look at Starbucks and Roku. I'll just give two two examples, right? These stocks have rallied exactly where they were last quarter, right? After they kind of reported. Starbucks, okay, maybe North American pricing held up better. China was worse as expected. Overall was fine. But I think people find themselves chasing, and I think it's a quality name, Starbucks, but look at Roku, okay? It's exactly where it was. It was $98 in August. It was $56 last week. It's $78 this week. This is an $11 billion market cap. So my message to people would be, if you start doing the extremes and you're selling at the lows and you're buying at the highs, you can lose $100 on a $75 stock. I mean, honestly. So again, know what you own. That company, by the way, lost $330 million in the quarter. I just want to throw that out there. Roku lost $330 million. And the last thing I'll say on an interview stock name, because I got to get this out of the way, is this company, Paycom, which runs payroll processing for companies, basically, right? They invented a product a year and a half ago called Betty, Better Employee Transaction Interface. Now, whoever invented that product is probably no longer with the company, since they're blaming it because the companies became more efficient, their payrolls are actually more correct, that they didn't have errors in payroll processing. That stock lost $6 billion in market cap yesterday on a guy down based upon the fact that the ROI to their customers on this product was much better than expected. There was less errors on the payroll. So good invention, Paycom, way to put that product out there. I wonder if that software engineer is no longer with them. That's my individual stock grant. Not an insignificant company. I think even with the move, you're still talking about a $10 billion market cap. This was a $375 stock Paycom in July, trading $157 now. Moves of this magnitude, Dan, again, we're cherry picking, I understand, but it's not just that. Estee Lauder, Caterpillar, there's a laundry list of big companies that have gotten taken out to the woodshed. Yeah, that being said, like today is just a different mood. This is Thursday into the close and and I have five stocks. Roku, you just mentioned, is up 30%. There's uh, DoorDash is up 16%. The list goes on and on about stocks that are up double digit percent on a day like today. And I think some of that is really a, a little bit of animal spirits. It's investors chasing. They're going for beta. If the Fed just said they're pretty much done raising interest rates, this is maybe a bookend to late 2021 when all of these stocks started getting crazy when the Fed said they're going to start raising interest rates to battle inflation, right? So unprofitable tech trading at extreme valuations got the snot kicked out of them. I want to go back to one thing, though, Danny, that you just mentioned on that ISM number. So the manufacturing number that was really weak. And if you look at the chart of the ISM, it basically at 46.7 is what they printed, okay? That's right where it was in late 2019, early 2020, okay, before obviously we, we know what happened with COVID. It's also at a level where it was in early 2016. If you guys recall, early 2016 was a very volatile period. There was lots of concern 
about global growth at the time. So when you think about the long and variable lags of these rate increases, the fact that we are starting with an ISM below 50, very well below 50, it to me is interesting because the takeaway from Fed Chair Powell's commentary on Wednesday was that it was a dovish pause, right? And I think one of the reasons why we have a market that's raging the way it has over the last couple sessions is that sentiment had maybe moved towards a hawkish pause, right? And so if we move to dovish, but I take the dovish pause and I look at this ISM and I say to myself, if the economy is weakening and the long variable lags of basically the rate increases, if we do have unemployment tick up, and we're going to know this by the time you're listening to this tomorrow, okay, then that could set off a whole string of events that would not be, in my opinion, too fantastic for buying equities at this point. So that's my two cents on that. But again, we're going to know more tomorrow. The flip side of that is if the jobs number remains hot, if jobs is just this outlier for some sort of reason, and we continue to have degradation on some of these other economic inputs, that sort of uncertainty is also, in my opinion, not going to be great for equity valuations. I'm in agreement with you on one part, but the second part is I've been somewhat dovish in the sense of I think the Fed is not paying attention. I think things are going to slow down more. I think the ISM number, just so people know, 50 is neutral on an ISM number. Anything north of 50 is expansion. Anything less is deemed to be contraction. So just so people understand that. So my vantage point is where I agree with you, Dan, is that someone used the word Goldilocks yesterday. This is the exact opposite of Goldilocks, in my opinion, because you still have reasons for the Fed to keep their foot, you know, at least stay on hold and not cut. But you are now seeing in real time continuing claims. People should be paying attention to that number. I mean, it was extremely high and it keeps growing. I think it's the highest since April. And that's growing with ISM coming down. So if the tax receipts don't come in to support this deficit, and I'll even want to take one step back again, and people like think that they're treasury auction experts all of a sudden, that's not good because we're going to grow the deficit and grow the debt even more. And so point is that if GDP starts to contract, which I think it, obviously it's going to come off of the third quarter number for sure, what does that mean to earnings? And what does that mean in 2024 in earnings? And I know Rosie, Dave Rosenberg is going to get into that a little bit. We'll talk about that kind of what that means 2024 revisions that might happen. But no, my takeaway wasn't Goldilocks. But again, the thing I said two weeks ago and three weeks ago is don't get trapped in yields coming in as a sign to go buy equities because you don't know if it's sustainable, but why did yields come in? Yields did not come in because of the Fed, in my opinion. The long end of the curve came in because of the ISM that were in contraction in the marketplace. That's how I feel. And people wanted to make up the story about Yellen's announcement. It was, it was in line. Yields are going lower because the position of short treasuries got themselves to one side of the boat that needed to be rectified. And people will say, Bill Ackman signified the way in. He also signified the way out. Maybe people followed him. All right. Maybe that's the case. But the reality is the market got itself way too short bonds, number one. But the ISM number, and you're right, the economy is slowing. The statement that Danny just made speaks to what we're struggling with. When does bad news, Dan, become bad news? Because right now, bad news, obviously, for the market is good news for the equity market. And we're seeing it with the moves of this magnitude. Now, historically, when you see outsized moves, they typically happen in the confines or the construct of a bear market. I don't think we're in any kind of market right now, but these sort of moves out of nowhere to the upside are typically not all that healthy. I mean, listen, this was a very telegraphed meeting. We've been tracking the CME Fed Funds Tracker. The probability of a hike for both this meeting and December have been coming down meaningfully over the last month and a half or so. So again, a lot of folks who are looking at the markets or looking at the economy through rose-colored glasses were saying, that's it. 
The Fed's going to be done. That's when you want to buy equities. We've talked a lot about it a lot. We talk about it with Rosie a little bit. I'll just say this. In the S&P 500, it topped out in July at 4,600. The all-time high was basically 4,800 in the first week uh, of January of 2022. If you just look at the move from the July highs, we've had a very well-defined downtrend, a series of lower highs, lower lows. We've had basically now we're in the throes of our third rally, okay, off of a relative low that's been between four and 5%. So we're at 5%. So by the time you're listening to this, again, if Apple beats and raises, and I would say that the sentiment in and around Apple has been very negative. It was down 15% from its July highs at its recent lows, okay? If it's a beat and raise and people are just all in on that stuff, then the S&P is going back towards 4,600. Like that's just gonna be what happens. But if it's not particularly great and the stock actually doesn't do anything and sells up, then this is the perfect opportunity to kind of lay into the S&P, in my opinion, and play for lower lows. Because to Danny's point and what Rosie talks about, as we get closer to year end, the focus is going to be on 12 to 13% expected EPS growth in the S&P 500, which is trading at about 18 times per fact set on those expectations, which is well above the 10-year average where rates were much lower during the whole time. And so, Danny, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about we went back and forth on the jobs versus ISM versus all this stuff. Man, stagflation, like that's the scenario, whether the Fed never gets down to 2% and whether it never goes up meaningfully from these levels, it would reset our economy at a place which we have not been. When you're looking at it through this lens of the stock market, that would be a very weird place given where valuations are, in my opinion. What did Powell say? He actually used the word tightening financial conditions for the first time. He actually used it, which means that we've been talking about longer of the curve is starting to cut into growth. And it is a financialized economy. That's why we're saying it's so important to watch rates. But that being said, rates pull in 30 basis points, even 50, even 70. It's not going to change anything, in my opinion, on the long end, because a lot of the funding stuff, the mechanisms occur on the shorter end, and the Fed is still in, in control of that. And what would make those come in would be a substantial slowdown in the economy, which I think would correlate to your point, Dan, with lower earnings and lower growth. And so those are the things that I think we just got to deal with. We're not in a bear market per se by definition, but this feels like a bear market rally or whatever you want to call it. It's awful lows. And listen, if Apple's a good number, great. I don't think we're getting back to 4,600. I don't think we're going to get close to that number. I, I don't know. But again, time of year also, let, let's keep in mind, you basically have 20 to 25 real trading days, maybe 30 between all the holidays, Thanksgiving week slow. Then once you get to December 16th, so one more Fed meeting, they're going to do nothing to ruin or the end of the year. In, in my opinion, we do have government shutdown again, could be looming. I don't, there's a lot of stuff out there and you turn to the macro. So it's bad enough here locally, but the macro environment still bad. So again, I'm kind of a risk off guy. That being said, we talked about the potential for a rally in treasuries. A lot of money's come out of both. Plenty looks like it's going back into both, but don't get trapped into this false sense of security that, that the 10-year yield coming in is giving you the green light on equity. Yeah, I think it's a one-dimensional way of looking at it. Lower yields, higher stocks. That's historically, I guess, been some correlation. I don't think it necessarily will continue. And I do think, Dan, there's going to be a point. If yields continue to go lower, you get that point of diminishing marginal returns. What is that point? Is it four and a half in a 10-year or something like that? I'm not sure what it is, but the equities can rally to your point on the back of yields continuing to go lower until they get to a point where people say, wait, what is 
is going on here, this is actually pretty scary because lower yields in this environment suggest that the economy is slowing down. And by definition, that means earnings are slowing down. But crazy moves. The Starbucks quarter was fine. The guidance was fine. Margin improvement on the back of basically higher cost drinks. So they're fleecing their customers to a point. People probably got themselves way off sides in that name. And that's why you see a stock move 10%, which again, you don't see that in a name like Starbucks historically to the upside. At least I haven't seen it in quite some time. Yeah, and again, to your point, I don't think it has much to do with basically people piling into Starbucks because this is the next leader in the next phase of the bull market or whatever. I think it has to do with positioning. I have think it has to do with even valuation while it's expensive relative to many consumer discretionary peers in the market. The stock has been underperforming for so long over the course of this year that some people are saying maybe that was the worst of it. And maybe you know a few turns below its average multiple over the last five years, this is a good entry point. I also bring you back to another thing. When you talk about trying to get a, a fix on what the economy is doing here, all that consumer stuff is fantastic. There's been lots of cross currents in that. When I look at crude oil this morning, it, it traded, I think, 80 down at least. 10% or so from those periods in early October after the horrific terrorist attack in Israel. And, and again, the way the things are playing out over there, it doesn't feel like that is going to be a tidy little solution. So I think it's interesting how crude trades right here, Guy. It almost trades like there's more supply coming online or there's weak demand at this stage well, of the game. Well, there's no more supply coming online, but maybe it's a demand thing. Again, maybe it's a function of everything we're talking about, an unwind of a lot of different trades all at once. It felt as if the market got themselves very long crude energy stocks, very short the bond market, maybe very short the equity market in aggregate. And now there's this unwind and throw the dollar in there as well. And there's this unwind going on. So I get it to a point, but Danny, I'll push this to you. If you think about it, given what yields have done, given the fact that the dollar is seemingly slowing down to the upside, if not turning, all roads should lead to the gold market. And gold, it's not going up, but it's not going down. It's right here. So if there's ever time for gold to prove itself, Danny, I think it's now. Yeah, listen, I think it's held. I think it had it's had a big run. I know you guys talked on Market Call, two things you mentioned on Market Call yesterday with Carter. One was obviously that rates were due for a rally or bonds were due for a rally and rates would pull back literally to this level, 465 to 470 on the 10. So nice call there. And the gold was in a prove-it mode in the sense of, yes, it could pull back a little bit. And as Dan said yesterday on Market Call, it could remain flat here for a little bit. Listen, it had a nice run, take a deep breath, but no one wants to own gold when they think that there's going to be a large equity rally because that's where they don't want to allocate because it's a kind of a risk-off thing. That being said, again, I'm patient on it. I don't care. I'm buying this thing on any dip. I don't think we're out of the clear. I don't let the stock market rally or sell off dictate my thinking, meaning in terms of the construct of the market. It will dictate how I trade potentially by buying and selling things that either get too expensive or too cheap. Gold for me doesn't fall under either of those things because I see it as something completely independent. And you mentioned the dollar. I want to talk about the yen here when we get a second and talk about Bank of Japan. And I want to touch one other aging country really quick, which is China which just had horrible factory orders and a slowdown in services. I just want to note that. And the reason I mentioned is I just want to know where the growth is going to come from globally, right? What kind of what's going to happen? Let me get to Japan for a second, who had their meeting. It was pretty well leaked out that they would probably, quote, get rid of this yield curve control and or just use 1% on their 10-year is the number and allow it potentially to trade to one and a half or two, even though they don't think it'll get there. They adjusted their inflation forecast you think our Fed is bad. They finally have inflation over there to 2.8 in 2023, which seems low on a relative basis, but for them, that's extremely high. 
And now they're saying 2.8 up from 1.9 for next year. What they didn't do was change their negative interest rate policy, which is now people are, are assuming they have to do it. The yen's at real risk here. And again, we're sitting above 150. We weakened above 150 on the yen. We're staying here. It's holding in right there, right? Keep an eye on that one, again, as the barometer for risk in the market. And to me, I think it's being watched. I think people took a deep breath after BOJ because nothing, quote, broke. But I still think something's going to break there. So watch that trade. I think it's very important. One nothing over there. broke, but dollar-yen traded 151.5, I think, if I'm not mistaken. We haven't seen those levels in quite some time. 150, for whatever reason, I understand why, was seemingly at some line in the sand. You mentioned JGBs at levels we haven't seen in quite some time. Maybe it's not breaking in like warp speed, but it's a slow motion thing. And to your point, Danny, they have to move almost by definition. They have to move from that. And I think they understand the ramifications around it. And I don't want to get too wonky here, but that is actually really negative for U.S. yields. In other words, U.S. yields should actually go up on the back of that without getting too granular. Just remember last year when the Bank of England, when, you know, the U.K. prime minister lost her job and all that Liz Trust happened and it happened Three really weeks. quickly. What happened was the sterling sold off so dramatically the exact same reasons that effectively you're about to see in Japan. Meaning if you're going to sacrifice your currency, look out because you mentioned oil at the top of this segment. That's a big import issue for people in Japan. So the yen gets weaker, oil's more expensive. So people just need to think about the checks and balances. I love days like today. I love looking around my board, my main fact set screen. It's like a, it's like a heat map a little bit. I have like hundreds of tickers and I have them separated by different sectors and the like. And I like to see how things are acting relative to other groups, how they're acting relative to the broad market. And today is really interesting because, Guy, what was the comment that you read earlier to me from Jamie Dimon about interest rates? And I think it was interesting. We know that we've been talking. Jamie, I think six months ago, said be prepared for 5 6%. Over the last couple months, he's been saying be prepared for 7 8%. And so on a day like today, where yields have come in really hard, and I look at the BKX is up near 4%. The KRE is up a little more than 4%. Some of the money center banks are up 3% or something like that. What noticeably stands out is JP Morgan is only up 1.4% versus an S&P that's up 1.75%. The flip side of that, two weeks ago, when Tesla had their earnings call, Elon spent a lot of time focused on the macro and a lot of time focused on rates. And it's interesting on a day where yields are in so much, okay, the NASDAQ's up 1.75%, that Tesla's up more than 6%. Now, obviously, Tesla had gotten hit pretty hard after its results. So I, I love to find little tidbits yeah. like that in the market on days like today, because sometimes they're like, what do you call it, a tell guy? A, a little bit. huge tell. And to your point, Jamie Dimon was on Yahoo Finance, I think, two days or so ago. And this is his quote. Uh, so listen real quick, Danny. We run the company, JP Morgan, so that if there is a 7 or 8% long bond rate, we're going to be fine. We're not guessing for it, but we stress test. So they're stress testing for 7 or 8% yields, which they understand it's not going to get. But embedded in that, they think rates are going higher still. And he's he just didn't say this today. I mean, he's been saying this for the last 12 to 18 months. So he has not transitioned or he's not pivoted. And, and I want to make one point about that. So he's saying he's managing his business to that potential rate environment. Right. Okay. Interestingly, you could say that Elon is also doing the same. Why? He's been cutting prices aggressively as yields had been going higher over the last year or so. So to me, they're both speaking to like things that are really impactful to their businesses in the rate environment. And I just highlight that because it's not, I think all of us felt like when you are blaming the Federal Reserve for how your company is operating or how your stock is doing, you're probably in a bad spot in my opinion. 
I think that JP Morgan stock has outperformed its peers up till now. So a little catch up there, I'm sure. And I think people that set up these long short trades at all these shops that we know of are long JP Morgan and short the other ones. So when they have to cover some of the other ones, they do sell some of the JP Morgan. So I think there's a structural setup there as well. Not going to say where I know where rates are going to go, but I do know how important they are to the functioning of this economy. And so if you're a big bank, you have to make a strategic decision in certain areas. You're cutting mortgage bankers. Are you, what are you doing in M&A? And listen, what this does, obviously, if, if rates do move lower here substantially and they stay lower, it'll open up a little window for the end of the year, I think, for some deals to potentially get done and things to come and some debt to get priced and so forth. So if there were things that were waiting for improvement, you will see a flood of issuance come out that way. So all part of the game here, boys. The chop going on this year, just again for context, we're at 4,300 or so in the S&P. We've basically been in this 4,000 to 4,400 range the majority of the year. Everybody's getting chopped up right now. If you're bullish, it hasn't been a particularly good year. You're getting chopped. And clearly, if you're trying to play things from the bear side, you've had a couple of opportunities. You're getting chopped as well. And if you're probably just buy and hold, that hasn't all worked out great unless you've been in very specific amount of names. It's been a dicey year without question. And here we are in November. Before you know it, we're going to be talking about 2024. Yeah. And, you know, Danny, you mentioned this a lot last year, especially as there was a lot of baby being thrown out with the bathwater and individual names. And you talked about really doing the work, rolling up your sleeves, looking at individual names. There's going to be opportunities. And I think that's clearly been the case. I think that over the last six months or so, I think the opportunity has been thinking about sectors. And we were talking about like utilities and staples over the last few weeks and just thought they got really overdone and the valuation premium in those groups relative to where yields are in other groups, like that came in and look at how those things are popping. So to me, I actually think it's a really good trading environment. And I think once we get through, let's say Apple, NVIDIA, I think there's going to be a lot of clarity for you to be able to look at some of these sectors and look at what's underperformed or what's outperformed and put some like parish trades on and, and that sort of thing. So to me, top presents opportunity. But if you were just a buy and hold and you thought the market was trading well based on how it's viewing the economic prospects, if you looked under the hood and we've been highlighting this for months and months, it wasn't particularly great. But maybe obviously if there really is some clarity about the pace and hikes going higher, then it does present the opportunity to pick stocks and groups and the like. Again, we're not bearish. We're bearish, I think, overall on just the entire market. But individual stocks can be bought. And when you have down moves like we had from 4,600 to 4,100, you get opportunities where things may get oversold or overdone. It is a stock picker's market. It is a bond picker's market. I will stand by that. I think that's going to be the theme in 2024. And there's always stuff to own. So if you can trade kind of the extremes on both ways and be very smart about it, great. But what you can't do, and that's for long-term investors, what you can't do is have seller's remorse and buyer's remorse and keep trading these stocks back and forth. And this type of volatility of companies either haven't been through cycles before, haven't proven themselves cycles before, because you're really taking a risk, in my opinion, in this type of environment to get really chopped up. And I'll make one other comment. I did listen to part of the Joe Rogan, Elon Musk interview, and they asked about the fight with Zuckerberg, if it would be back on. And he, Musk stood by, I'm just doing this for intellectual comments here, that he stood by that he's a walrus and that if a walrus can sit on something, so I am the walrus, sit on something that there's no way that Zuckerberg could get out from underneath. Rogan looked at him like he was a farm animal, like, what are you talking about? He started showing clips of some of his UFC guys that weigh 140, that drop 240 guys. Anyway, that's what you're dealing with people. You and Tesla is a genius like the believes he can lay on top of Zuckerberg and win the jujitsu match. I really hope that match happens, by the way. Cuckoo anyway. kajuda to him, by the way. And let's listen. Baseball scene, this is over. We've now, believe it or not, the second half of the NFL season is upon us. You're coming in at a 541 clip 
13 and 11 as we reach week nine in the league where they play for pay. Danny Moses. A couple big games and a couple teams that I never take that I'm taking this week. Bengals are rolling. Home against the Bills, laying two. I'm taking Cincy. Bills just haven't been consistent. They just don't look great. Give me Cincinnati at home. I am taking, sorry, Vinny, the New York Jets at home. Jets getting three and a half at home against the Chargers. Chargers aren't that good. They haven't beat anybody good. And Jets defense is solid. I'm going to regret this pick, but Jets plus three and a half. And then Cleveland laying eight at home against Arizona. I don't care if Deshaun Watson plays or not. I don't believe that Kyler Murray's playing. That's eight points. Cleveland defense, I don't think Arizona scores. Cleveland at home in the dog pound, minus eight. Those are my three guys. When was the last time you think the Browns were laying eight to anybody? I, I Honest to God, that that is... It, it, it could be Brian Seip. Brian Seip. Or, or Bernie it's Brian Kodar. Seip It days. could be a long time. It's crazy. That goes back to the 80s. So good for the Browns. But I got to tell you something. If you're laying eight, you better win that friggin' game and show that you're for real. And I will say this as well. I think the Steelers have turned the corner. I'll say it again and again. There are things happening there. They're going to figure it out. They're going to get better. They're getting healthier. Their record isn't great, but you watch and see what the Steelers are going to do in the second half of the year. All right, listen, to quote John Lennon, I don't believe in Jay Powell. I just believe in me. And listen, great conversation, guys. Stick around. David Rosenberg of Rosenberg Research joins the pod. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. We got a treat today. David Rosenberg, who needs no introduction, is joining us. If there's an economist you should listen to, an economist slash strategist slash market pundit, it's David Rosenberg. So, Rosie, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me back on. I, I think that I've got uh, perfect job security with you guys because you keep on telling me you're going to invite me back until I get it right. A little self-deprecating humor. Well, here's the thing, okay? I think that Guy, Danny, myself, we go back with you. We've been listening to you on TV. We've been reading your work. Um, what you do specifically at Rosenberg Research gives you like the ability to kind of you do you in, in a way. When you talk about being right in the markets, when I think about strategists, I think about economists. It's not about their S&P 
target. It's it's like a holistic sort of view to things. And so think about going back to your call about the housing market. And I know Danny w- was right there with you in the mid 2000s early, sometimes is wrong in the markets, but sometimes how you use those inputs, how you use that data, I think is really important. So again, when we joke about being right in the markets, we've been talking about it a lot on the pod. We've been talking about it on, on Fast Money for months and months now, David. I mean, the S&P has been up high single digits, double digits for most of this year. The, the NASDAQ has been up more than 30% for most of this year. Yet, look under the hood, most of the sectors are screaming something very different than the headline S&P and the NASDAQ. Look, up until July, it was looking like a, a real ripping year for the stock market writ large, but I don't think you can look at it in a vacuum. We came off egregiously oversold levels in October of last year, and you have to look at it in that context. I think that where I differed from the consensus was the view that we had re-embarked on a fresh bull market, whereas I said, no, this is a rally in a fundamental bear market, which we've seen before. And the reason why I knew for a fact that this was not the onset of a new bull market is because when you come off a fundamental bear market low and you're into a brand new bull market, you can see it. Uh, As you mentioned in the internals, volumes are surging along with prices. Market breadth is spreading out. That never really happened. And you're typically led by the small caps. Usually the S&P 500 equal weight is way outperforming the market cap weight S&P. In other words, saying that breadth confirms the price when you're coming off a fundamental low. That didn't happen this time. The small caps lead, the cyclicals lead, that didn't happen. And the financials lead. And that didn't happen. None of the things that I always look for as the aha moment that we're in a new bull market never happened. And of course, I think that what you guys are getting at is that the market breadth and the concentration risk in the market never really went away. Even heading into the summer, when you had like a modicum of better breadth, it was never anything that should get anybody excited. And so that's really been the story is you've had the Magnificent Seven, everybody knows that, and you've had everybody else. And you got the S&P 500, in any given day, it's either up 8% or up 12%. But all along, the equal weight index, let's just say the average stock, never really participated and is actually down for the year or was up until the last couple of days. And that's really the story. The story, in one word or less, is bifurcation. That is the story in the stock market, the have and the have-nots. Rosie, the one thing that's being, I think, lost in this is there's one thing to point out a cycle which are normal things to occur, which we see. And everybody's always impatient with the timing of when that cycle will show itself. But there's a secular element to this, which I think in our careers that we haven't seen, meaning in 2008 and 2009, when the Fed came in, Treasury came in and did all these things, we're now unwinding that. To me, that's a secular shift, not cyclical. So how do you marry the normal cycle environment and throw in the secular shift? Because I think that's the one thing that's being lost in all this mix. There's no doubt that we've had and continue to have a major unwinding of all the stimulus. That by itself doesn't really concern me from a market perspective. Liquidity is obviously very important, but what actually concerns me the most is less what the Fed has been doing. Of course, the fact that they've taken the N out of TINA, so now we have TIA, so now we have alternatives in fixed income and money market. What concerns me the most about the stock market is valuation. And I'm talking specifically about the equity risk premium, which is down to 80 basis points, where historically in a normal market, it's closer to 300, 350 basis points. From my perspective, and I guess we can come back and 
go back to your comment that maybe it's less about liquidity constraints by the Fed and more by the fact that by pinning the overnight rate, five and a quarter, five and a half, he's basically brought up the entire term structure of interest rates. And when push comes to shove and you're doing your analysis in, say, your asset mix of stocks relative to bonds, I don't think there's been a time in my life where the bond market was this attractive relative to the equity market. And the equity risk premium is important because it's telling investors at any moment in time whether or not you're paying to take on the equity risk or you're getting paid to take on the equity risk. And right now, the math just does not work to be long the S&P 500. So back to your point, I guess if you talk about quantitative tightening and more bonds in the market and the Fed, and we have a more elevated level of interest rates, that just feeds right back into what I'm saying, which is the most important thing is what this does to relative valuations in the stock market. And the math just doesn't work. Doesn't mean that we don't come off a couple of days. The market's ripping today. The market ripped yesterday. Again, very oversold levels and sentiment got washed out. It's all very near term and technical. But until we do a classic Bob Farrell mean reversion of the equity risk premium, we have to treat these rallies in the stock market as rallies that you rent, not rallies that you own. Because if you own these rallies, there's going to come a time where you're going to have your head sliced off. In a fundamental bull market, you can write out the mini storms and your head won't be sliced off. That's not what we're in right now. And we won't be in until we mean revert the equity risk premium, which people don't even understand the math. What does the math mean to reestablish a normal, not an abnormal, a normal ERP? You'd have to get the 10-year note yield down to 25 to 3%. And that would have to coincide with a test of the October lows of last year. David, in 1977, I'll take you back a little ways. Jackson Brown released Running on Empty. Great album, all live cuts from different venues he played at. I think Garden State Arts Center was one of them. Anyway, one of the songs on that album was Rosie, your nickname. Another song on that album was Shaky Town. So my question to you, what is shakier right now? Is it the economy or is it the market? I'll just say that 1977, my beloved Montreal Canadiens won the Stanley Cup. So that's what I remember about 1977 and being a, a long-suffering Montreal Canadiens fan. At least my memory is intact. When I want to make myself happy, I just play replays of the 77 <laughs> Stanley Cup winning team. What's shakier, the markets or the economy? I would say that they both are. We continue to have a very unhealthy level of concentration in the stock market. And I think that market breadth has been very weak. And on top of that, the valuations are far from compelling. I think the stock market is is vulnerable. And I think we will be more prone towards sell-offs than rallies up until such time as we are in the mature stages of the inevitable recession. And I say inevitable because the business cycle has not been repealed, despite what most people on Wall Street say today. They'll change their views. And the Fed has to reestablish a more normal shape to the yield curve. When we get twos, tens, plus 140 basis points from minus 20 right now, and when we get the equity risk premium closer to 300 basis points, the Fed has eased policy enough. Uh, I'll turn very bullish on the equity market, and I will come back on here hopefully in a year's time and become, uh, well, there's no such thing as a perma anything, but maybe I'll become a perma bull. I refer to the economy as a Potemkin village. And you know what I mean by that, right? When we talk about Grigor Potemkin, who was a general for Catherine the Great, and to make her feel happy, 
he built these fake villages in Crimea, and it was a facade. And I think that's what the economy is. It has been an energizer bunny. I would have thought that the recession would have started by now, but it hasn't. And that's because of the fact that we had a very long fuse from the fiscal giveaway of March of 2021, $2.2 trillion. That's a big chunk of change. And you can't spend it all at once. It had a longer lifeline than I thought it was going to have. Most of the academic work and historian work shows that when the household sector is confronted with a stimulus check, it saves half and spends half. But who is to know, and I guess this is why economics is a behavioral science, that we would have had YOLO, YOLO, you only live once, anger spending, revenge spending. So it all got spent. Throw the economic textbooks into the dustbin, and that's what's elongated the cycle. I was a bit surprised that Jay Powell expressed surprises to why the economy hasn't buckled yet. And he gave a few reasons and said maybe policy is not as tight as we think it is. We had two things. We had we did have fiscal expansion this year, and we do have a boom in manufacturing construction. It's interesting because we got the ISM yesterday at 46.7, a boom in the production of manufacturing facilities, which I think will be met with a bull market in mothballs in the future because there's nothing to produce. So we're building our own basically Potemkin village in manufacturing facilities. The United States is not going to become the world's low-cost producer of semiconductors, but the White House seems to want to believe it. But I think that we're going to see the emperor disrobed. I'm talking about the 70% chunk of the economy called the consumer. Now that the fiscal stimulus has run its course and the savings rates are rock bottom 3%. And remember the pre-COVID norm was closer to 10% than 3%. So the savings rates are going to mean revert as well. A lot of ratios are going to mean revert. And the lagged impact of the rate hikes haven't been felt yet. And asking about the economy, I think that there's a lot of complacency out there. We talked off the show about 2007. And 2007, that cycle also was elongated. I was saying in the beginning of 07, the recession should be here, but it wasn't. You know, despite the fact people make stuff up and they all say, I was calling for the housing market. I remember like yesterday, the only other economist on Wall Street calling for recession. So I'm not going to include Rubini. He was a professor. But the only Wall Street economist calling for a recession was Dick Berner. If you remember, he was a more Morgan Stanley. Just the two of us. And the consensus was calling for a soft landing right up until the summer of 08, even though we know in hindsight the recession started in December of 07. I think that the lags are going to kick in very forcefully in the next several months. And I think the people that threw the towel in on the recession call are going to be putting it back on in the first half of the year. Rosie, it's interesting. From the highs in July, the S&P to its recent lows, it was down nearly 11%, right? So we're in this pretty well-defined downtrend. Right now, we're in the throes of, let's say, a four and a half percent rally off of last week's lows. I think what the Fed had to say on Wednesday was fairly well anticipated. So here we are, we're rallying. At this point, it it feels like a rally that we've had on on two occasions over the last, call it three months or so. But I want to go back to the expectation that because the Fed is done, and I think you probably think this is lazy sort of commentary, because the Fed is done for now, that it's the all clear. Now, obviously, we just spent time talking about ERP, and and you gave us a sense of where yields have to go and, and where equity markets have to test to make equities attractive. Again, when I go back and look at the last 30 years, okay, so the last, let's call it four times that the Fed had engaged on an aggressive rate hiking cycle, okay, when they stopped raising rates was the exact wrong time 
to be buying stocks, right? So we can go back to 2018 and we recall the 20% Q4 sell-off. Obviously, 2019 into 20, we had this black swan event. We had a 35% peak to trough decline and that came back quickly because of monetary and fiscal. But then if you go back and you think about 2007, and then you think in the lead up to 2000. Now, you could point to in the early mid-90s and, and the bull market that went on unabated really for five years or so, I think from 95 to 2000, the S&P rallied 30% on average a year. But talk to us a little bit about how you think about buying equities when the Fed is done raising interest rates. Nothing really surprised me that but the, the market reaction to the Fed and, and also there's there was the bond market reaction. So if you go back historically, you will see that when the market starts to figure that the Fed's done raising rates, you get a near-term relief rally in the stock market. That's what we're seeing right now. There's nothing right now that's out of the realm of what we've seen historically. Then what happens is you have a lag. There's about a 10-month lag between, and this is just an average, between the Fed pause and you only know the Fed pause by looking at history. I think the Fed is in pause right now. And there's a 10-month lag between the last hike and the first cut. So the last hike was in July, which means they'll start cutting rates in May. And then the question is, why would they start to cut rates? And it's because the lags kick in and we get the recession and the recession crushes inflation. And we can all have an intellectual debate on the future of inflation, deglobalization, if you want, or the return of worker power, if you want, fiscal, structural fiscal deficits. We can all talk about that. But in recessions, we're talking about inflation in a cyclical sense, it's going to melt. So the Fed will see inflation going down. It'll see unemployment going up, all the things that it's wanted all along. But the Fed gets what it wants and then some in both directions. And that's called the business cycle. The Fed pauses and the market rallies and it's a temporary rally because the Fed pauses because the economy is slowing down and you tend to find that earnings estimates come down and that acts as a constraint on what the stock market can do. And then what happens is the Fed starts cutting rates. And once again, you get a knee-jerk reaction every time. Every time when the Fed cut rates, it was on the first trading day of the year, I think it was January 3rd of 2001, when Greenspan realized that, oops, no, we don't have an inventory correction on our hands. We thought we did. It's actually a detonation of the technology capital stock, something far different. They cut rates 50 basis points on the opening day of the year in 2001. I imagine you guys would remember that. We're all old enough. I think the, the stock market ripped 5% that day. Now, it was fun, but we know that the stock market didn't bottom, really did a double bottom in September 2002 and then in March, April of 2003 couple of years later. And then when I was at Mother Merrill in New York and the Fed starts to cut rates in August of 2007 and the market ripped, ripped. And that's what happens, right? That the stock market will often just react. And then the question becomes, why are they cutting rates? And they're cutting rates because we had a bad recession staring us in the face and the stock market doesn't bottom till March of 2009. You'll invite me on again in a few months and the Fed's going to cut rates and the market's going to rip and we're going to say, look at the market ripping. I'm going to say the stock market, this is a, a knee jerk reaction. We'll probably go at that point. And once again, what have we done this time? We're just testing moving averages, 200 day moving average. This is what the stock market is. It's basically operating on sentiment and technicals. And the reason why the bear market will become extended is because people will figure out, don't forget that 
the consensus, which is what valuations are built on, is for year-over-year EPS growth at the end of 2024 to be 14%. What if we got a recession? You're only going to get 14% in, in a boom. Do you know that, right? Earnings growth over time runs at about a two percentage point premium over nominal GDP. So what are these analysts trying to tell us that we're going to have 12% nominal GDP growth next year? Do you know that's that's never happened since 1950? That's never happened. But we get the recession, which I still think is my base case scenario. It doesn't matter what the Fed does. The Fed will create the conditions for a brief knee-jerk relief rally, but that's it. Because the story next year will be that these lofty earnings expectations will flip from plus 14 to something that's going to be probably negative. In a recession, earnings go down. The reason why we had a bad earnings year up until recently was because of the cost push inflation. Just wait until the demand side of the economy starts to contract. So I think that will be the story. That's the one thing you want to keep in the back of your mind, that What's shaky? I had the question about what's shaky. The market's shaky, the economy's shaky. Here's what is really shaky is that plus 14% year-over-year EPS growth estimate that's being priced in right now for the end of next year. Extremely vulnerable to a major downsizing. Rosie, you had a good call earlier this week to buy bonds on the longer end. I think you came out Tuesday morning with it. I know that Dan and Guy on their market call with Carter the other day said the same thing. You can get a knee-jerk reaction with a rally uh, in the bond market and rates to come in. And I go back to my secular point that I made up before. Global central banks across the world propping up the markets, obviously propping up their bond markets for years and keeping yields low. My question is this. In, an, in a recession, and I'm in your camp that we're probably starting it right now, we'll look back in probably the middle of the second quarter next year or third quarter and say we just had it or what's going on. At what point are we concerned with global tax receipts or even U.S. tax receipts? receipts, not covering, obviously, our debt. That's not going away. That keeps mounting. Does it become a credit worthiness issue that's driving the bond market versus just a flight to safety? And how do you jive that in your forecast for where longer term yields will go? What do economists do well is we run correlations. People just make stuff up. Once again, we talked about Mike and the mechanics. People just make stuff up. They say, look at uh, all the fiscal. The fiscal situation, it's an abomination. And that's why bond yields are going up. But you're going to find historically that in years where we had the biggest fiscal blowups and the deficit were great years for the bond market. People, don't, people are clueless. They have no idea that two of the worst years for the treasury market before these last few, you know, 98, 99, where Bill Clinton was running surpluses. So I find there's only a 20% correlation between fiscal policy and the direction of bond yields. It's not zero, but it's not significant. What is significant, of course, is core inflation and headline inflation. But the most important with a 90% correlation is the Fed funds rate, the cost to carry. Fed expectations is singularly the most important factor for the bond market. So when people talk about the treasury issuance, or they talk about that there's a foreign buyer strike, which isn't happening, that does not exist in the tick's data, but people talk about it, they'll go on TV and they'll talk about the foreign buyer strike. It doesn't exist. If the US dollar was crapping out on us, US dollar's been in a one-way ticket north. Where is this exactly buyer strike? And it's not showing up in treasury notes or in bonds in terms of what foreigners are buying. The biggest source of selling is in the futures market, right? You look at the CFTC data, you look at the net speculative short position. It's at a record net short. The hedge funds have piled on. Now, when they covered those shorts, which they might have started doing, 
The bond rally is going to be spectacular. The selling has been in the futures and options pits in Chicago. That's been the selling, and it was led by Bill Ackman, who I mistakenly poked fun at in a tweet because he made out like a bandit on that trade. But what did he do last week? He closed it, and now everybody's going to follow him. And people don't have a clue the power of buying when you cover a short position, and the short position on the 10-year note is unprecedented. So that's the first thing I'll say. More fundamentally is that before Powell got on the podium yesterday, we had that really lousy ISM number, 46.7. The market wasn't looking for that. And the Atlanta Fed has taken its fourth quarter number from 2.26 to I think now they're at 1.24. Correct me if I'm wrong. 1.24 is a growth recession. That's stall speed. If you're bullish on bonds, we really need that number. But you got to tip your hat to the Atlanta Fed because they nailed Q3, right? They nailed it. They were at a five handle. Then we got 4.9, but they were there in mid-August. So if they're anywhere in the ballpark, basically 1% growth in the fourth quarter. 1% growth in the fourth quarter. There's not a snowball's chance in hell if we get that number that the Fed is raising rates in December. But there are people on the street that still have that call. And in fact, the futures market is still pricing to this day 20% chance that the Fed is going to go again in December. And all our friends on CNBC today just talked about this morning about how Powell did not give up on that call. He might have questioned the veracity of the dot plots, but he didn't back away. But I think that we have to be rational human beings here and just say that there is not a chance they're raising rates if by mid-December when they meet, December 13th, if it's clear that GDP is down to where Atlanta Fed says it is at 1%, they're done. They're not raising rates. And I think the bond market's sniffing that out. So the bond market went up to 5%. I don't think it had anything to do really with fiscal, despite what you hear. It repriced for a ripping third quarter, which is now priced in in the rearview mirror, and it reset to this higher for longer Fed narrative. So really what happened here for the bond market was that it cried uncle. It stopped playing this game of chicken with the Fed. And that started on September the 20th at that meeting, where the tone was a lot different than this past meeting, because I think the Fed was definitely not hawkish. We can argue if it was dovish, definitely not hawkish yesterday, very hawkish September 20th. And they convinced the market that we're going to finish not just this year, but next year above 5%. So the, the bond market was forced into a fundamental reset to the most important determinant of bond yields, which is the Fed funds rate. I don't know why people complicate the story. I don't know why people complicate the story. It's about the reset of Fed expectations. I think those expectations will ultimately get reset the other way. Let me just say this about the Fed. In December 2021, two years ago, do you know what their dot plots were? The median dot plot for the end of 2024. Do you know what it was? For the end of next year. Their dot plot in December 2021, I'm only going back two years. They were one and five eighths for the end of this year and two and an eighth for the end of next year. One and five eighths for the end of this year, two and an eighth for the end of next year. So this is like Charlie Brown and Lucy with the football. Oops. And think about if you're a business person or a bank and you're actually believing the Fed in December 2021, the level shift of interest rate expectations is 300 basis points. Of course, we're going to go into a huge bear market and bonds. Rosie, you know who did believe them was Brian Moynihan, the CEO of Bank of America at, at the time when you think about just the moves that they were making. All the banks 
That's why the Fed had to create that term funding facility. They bailed out the banks who were uh, upside down on their um, bond trade. So the story on the bond market's been the reset of the Fed. I think the Fed's gone too far. I think that you're starting to see Powell has said two important things. He said that we have not, contrary to popular belief, we have not seen the full brunt of the rate hikes at the economy yet. And he has said that policy is restrictive. He just doesn't know how restrictive it is. But you're seeing some serious cracks in the housing market in volumes. I have to say, once again, people just make stuff up and they look at home prices. Case Shiller's up, what, six, seven months in a row. And they believe that is some going to have some sort of positive wealth effect on spending, which is ridiculous. To me, housing is a quintessential leading indicator. You guys are following me back in 06 and 07. And that's what I was following. The reason why home prices are going up is for very unhealthy reasons. Because we have two curves, supply and demand. If you can picture this in your head as I become Professor Rosenberg in the Eco 101 class, these two curves, supply and demand, are both shifting left. But the supply curve is shifting left at a faster pace. So prices are going up for completely the wrong reason. It's not because of strong demand. It's because the supply depletion is more than compensating for the demand destruction. And I don't know what the future is. Again, I always go back to my hero and mentor, Bob Farrell, and the 10 market rules to remember and rule one on mean reversion. And if you look at the National Association of Realtors affordability ratio, that is a mean reverting series. Like the equity risk premium is a mean reverting series. Like the yield curve, all mean reverting series. Well, the NAR's affordability ratio is 35% more constrained relative to its historical norm. Housing is out of reach for more people today than it was during the bubble in the mid-2000s. And you have to ask yourself the question, how are we going to mean revert? How are we going to mean revert this chart of the affordability ratio? And two things are going to have to happen unless we get a massive income boom, which we're not going to get going forward because the unemployment rate is going to go up. And that's because the Fed wants it to go up and the Fed will ultimately get what it wants and then some. And it comes down to the bond market question. Prices have to correct downward and bond yields have to continue to go down. Like to mean revert that chart, you have to have home prices down 20% and interest rates down at least 200 basis points. Like all paths lead to lower bond yields. And I think the treasury market is also figuring that out. Are we really going to have a sustained housing market with housing so out of reach for the median income household? That, that's just not going to happen. And it's not healthy. Rates have to come down and prices have to come down. And the prices coming down will be deflationary and that will help reinforce the decline in bond yields. All paths lead to lower interest rates and lower treasury yields. How are we going to continue have this conversation about the stock market? market. And all we really talk about is the spasm of the past week. When will we sit down, the four of us, and talk about a new fundamental bull market? I'm going to tell you, not a chance it's happening with an 80 basis point equity risk premium. We got to get that to 300 basis points to turn fundamentally bullish, to turn bullish like we would have turned bullish in the 1980s or in the 1990s. This is not that market. The math is working against the bulls. And if the stock market continues to go up, it's the math is going to work even worse because you want to make sure as an equity investor, remembering that you're lining up in the riskiest part of the capital structure. You're making big bets in the stock market, and the stock market does go up historically 85% of the time. So the wind is at your back most of the time, but not all the time. And then when you participate in a bear market, unfortunately, it could take you 10 years to get back to even, depending how gifted a trader you are. This is a problem with a bear market is that what happens is that people get killed, but then because they're so fearful, they don't participate in the first few years 
of the bull market. So they get sliced off. They say, I'm never touching equities again. At the time where the market bottoms, they're not participating. And that's why I try to tell people bear markets are really rough. And if you're not smart about it and you're not playing the probabilities and looking at risk reward attributes, it takes people sometimes 10 years to make up for the horrible capital loss uh, in a bear market. So I would say that all roads lead to lower bond yields. And I'll just say, because the question was before, my friends, three years of negative returns, three years of negative returns in the treasury market. And everybody is bearish on treasuries. And the last time we had three straight years of negative returns in equities, which was 2000, 2001, 2002, the tech wreck, the pundits were out full force. You got to buy stock. You got to buy stock. You got to buy stock. But no, but now people are just scared of the bond market. Three years of negative returns. Again, a mean reverting chart is the total return stock to bond ratio. It's at a new peak. But again, that does mean revert. And if you draw the chart inverted bonds versus stocks, it looks exactly like it did in August of 1982. And in October of 2002 and March of 2009, when the bond to stock ratio also went into the stratosphere. And when you start talking about two standard deviation events, that's the time to have switched from bonds to stocks. We have the exact inverse signal right now when you look at that ratio. So I am actually very bullish. I'm very bullish on treasuries. You guys can say, hey, Rosie, you know, you like them at four. You got to love them at five. And I don't just love them at five. I adore them. Last time that we had 5% and the economy was far less leveraged was back in July of 2007. Last time we touched 5% on the 10-year note. Nobody wanted to touch it. What was the total return 12 months later? 12%. No, I, I think from a sentiment standpoint, setting up um, very similarly, and, and I appreciate uh, all the historical framework there. Last thing I want to hit here, Rosie, before we get out of here in your note this morning, and just by the way, people, one of my first reads every morning is early morning with Dave. So check it out at Rosenberg Research. But you're highlighting credit, okay? You're saying keep an eye on the triple C's. You're talking about credit here. This is one that I think a lot of folks who are bearish on the economy, bearish of equities, especially coming out of the regional banking crisis, pointing to credit and and the potential issue there. And I just want to read this comment here that you had in your note this morning. Credit, especially the weakest and most speculative segment, which leads all asset classes with a lag, spreads have blown out 130 basis points since the end of September to 10.4 percentage points, the widest they have been since early June. We saw this happen in June 2000 and again in July of 2007. And oh boy, did they ever lead. So talk to us a little bit about credit quickly before we get out of here. You always want to take a look at the canary in the coal mine and the riskiest segments of the market. It's no different than looking at the relative performance of cyclicals to say staples in a stock market for a momentum gauge as a leading indicator or transports to utilities. So this is This one way you'd look at the bond market for telling you early warning signs. So the triple C's, the weakest part of the high yield market as an early financial stress indicator spreading out more broadly speaking. And the lags are often several months, but it's usually been something that has held me in good stead to keep an eye on. That's where the problems first start, but it's not where the problems end from a credit default standpoint. David, that was wonderful. By the way, that 77 Canadians team had nine future Hall of Famers, and then throw Scotty Bowman on top of that. 
I think the Bruins had maybe five, included John Rattel from the Rangers and Brad Park. I think Johnny Busick as well, but we'll talk about that on another podcast. It's always great having you join us. Thanks, David. Hey, thanks, guys. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.